0: Hello, and welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative, the show to help you get inspired, make creativity the filter for your life, redefine your relationship with fear, a.k.a. take it out of the driver's seat, put it in the back seat, maybe in the trunk, and through these things, step more fully into the essence of who you are, which is something that we all innately deserve as human beings. Oh, I'm Lauren LaGrasso, by the way, your host. And today I want to do a quick creative check-in, and that is about not rehearsing your troubles. I have this really great book. It's called Jesus Calling. Even if you're not Christian, honestly, I recommend it because there's just good messages in there. I'm i am I'm a Christian, but I incorporate lots of ideas of Buddhism and spirituality in general. But this has really helped me and given me a lot of insight into... What a waste it is to worry. I mean, almost every passage in there is somehow wrapped up in, don't spend all your time worrying because it truly does no good. And as somebody who has struggled with anxiety, I get that on an intellectual level, but it's kind of my habit to go back into spinning, spinning on thoughts. And there was one last week that just struck me so hard to the core. And I want to read a little bit of it to you. Okay, this is what it said. And you can replace this with anything, whether you believe in like, to me, God is not like a big white man in the sky. I see God as like love and infinite truth and everything that is in the world and is in me and you and everyone. So whether you see God as a father figure, if you see God as more of this kind of like spiritual entity, as I see it, if you or even if you're like atheist or agnostic, I think whatever you truly believe in life, you can replace with the me that is spoken to through this. So, okay, this is what it says. Come to me and rest in my loving presence. You know that this day will bring difficulties and you are trying to think your way through those trials. As you anticipate what is ahead of you, you forget I am with you now and always. So that I am with you now and always, obviously like I'm thinking of God here, but you could think of your higher self, like what your most evolved self would do. So back to the passage, rehearsing your troubles results in experiencing them many times, (sighs) whereas you are only meant to go through them when they actually occur. I'm going to repeat that. Rehearsing your troubles results in experiencing them many times, whereas you are meant to go through them only when they actually occur. Do not multiply your suffering in this way. Instead, come to me and relax in my peace. I will strengthen you and prepare you for this day, transforming your fear into confident trust. That blew me away. How much time do we all spend spinning on scenarios that don't ever happen or if they do happen are not as bad as we think they're going to be? It made me even think about, is it possible that we could be making things worse by spinning on these dark thoughts? Because if you can manifest something good, you can just as easily manifest something bad. So try not to rehearse. If you need to like figure out an action plan, that's different. But like just spinning on, like, and then they'll say this, and then I'll say this, and then this could happen, this could happen, this kind of thing. You're only going to throw yourself deeper into depression and anxiety if you do that. Instead, either make an action plan or just go ahead, rely on yourself and tackle the issue at hand. But don't sit there thinking about what might happen. It never makes it better. And this is as much advice to myself as to you. But that's why that struck me so much. Do not spend time rehearsing your trouble. Say it again and again and again until it sinks in. And if you do have to rehearse, keep it positive and productive. Like I said, make an action plan of what to do rather than thinking about infinite possibilities of how things could go wrong. All right. Now that we know that, I want to tell you a little bit about today's guest. His name is Gus Krieger, and he's an actor, writer, director, and producer of stage and screen, best known for working with names such as Nick Cannon, Glees' Max Adler, and for getting his films featured at prestigious film festivals such as Sundance. I've known him since the very beginning of my L.A. journey when we first did theater together through a Shakespeare group called The Porters of Hell's Gate. Gus grew up in LA with a family that was in the entertainment industry. His career started out on a high, getting primo writing representation right out of college at CAA, which is one of the hugest agencies out here, and having his first film premiered at Sundance. However, as we know in any creative industry, it's rarely a straight rise to the top. After that first film that was commercially successful, Gus struggled for a few years And he had to learn how to write, produce, and direct his films completely independently. As with any of us, there were some growing pains. But the most important lesson from him is to always keep going. If creativity is on your heart, it's not a choice. And if you have the talent, it's truly only a matter of time, hard work, and persistence until you break through. I'm glad to say Gus has all of the above, and his newest film is truly an incredible work of art. It's premiering this week, so I wanted to have him on to talk about his journey, share tips for fellow writers and filmmakers, why it's important to stay creative and have your mind in possibility throughout your entire journey, and how to always keep going. Here's Gus Krieger. When was the first inciting incident of your creativity?
1: First insight, that's a... That's a big one. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, really digging back. I remember that when I was in first grade, I made a picture book about Halloween where I didn't know anything about, you know, like how to write a book. It was – I stapled it on the wrong side. The, The binding was on the right side rather than the left, so it opened the wrong way. And I didn't know that when you compose a sentence, you don't need to put a dash in between every word. So, like, every word in every sentence had a dash between it. Very creative. <laughs> rather than a space. <laughs> and it was just, like, a bunch of, like, crayon drawings of, like, Frankensteins and, and Wolfmen and stuff. And, like, Halloween is a night when you... And then, like, I had this thing that I could walk around and, like, show to my classmates and show to, like, the cool, like, older fourth graders and stuff. And be like, look, I made this little bit. Oh, cool. And, they, you know, leaf through it and stuff. And it was like, all right, I could get down on this. And I think that that was, like, maybe the first you know what are you in fourth grade like 6 years old or something for uh, in first grade First um, grade
0: yeah 6 to 7 well i remember turning 7 when i was in first grade and being like i can't believe i was ever 6
1: <laughs> what a loser yeah who was that tiny person <laughs> yeah. yeah so that was that was probably the spark um even though i then went into performing arts for most of the you know intervening 20 years or whatever it was but the the initial thing was uh writing which i have circled back around to so
0: yeah We love circling back here. Exactly. (laughs) And you come from a family that's in the industry. I know your dad definitely is. He's a screenwriter as well?
1: Yes. He is currently a um, professor at two different colleges. He uh, teaches at the Peter Stark program at USC and then is a uh, professor at UC Riverside. And, yeah, back in the day was a feature writer, wrote a lot for uh, television, wrote made-for-TV movies, and uh, my mother was an actress for that period in between high school and when she was a mother, so.
0: how did having parents who were in the industry influence your decision to go in that direction? That's the first one, and then I want to know how it benefited you and how you feel like it also hurt you at times.
1: Yeah, I was lucky in that my father always worked pretty consistently, so the horror stories that you hear about, you know... Oh my my stage actor father we never knew where our next meal was going to come from it it was never like that the the good part of it was that it was very demystifying you know folks talk about oh i came from the midwest and i didn't know anybody in the industry and it was also remote and and mystical and i never had that issue because i could go into my dad's little uh backyard studio in our first house and you know see the things tacked up on his walls and see him at the computer and look at these uh script pages on on the floor you know INT interior house living room oh the, the people have to know all that okay that makes sense so it it was never this you know giant unknowable beast it was always just very much kind of as as part of the fabric of our growing up, as you know, like a, a couch or a television, you know, uh, mm-hmm. in the in the living room would would be, and of course the uh, the kind of downside of it was that my my mom was out of the game by the time I was a sentient being, um, <laughs> but watching my dad go through it, you know, I I could see the weight of it on him when when things were not as consistent or not as happy, you know, um, he, he would come in and just kind of have the weight of the world on his shoulders in a way that somebody who works a normal white collar nine to five doesn't, you know, you know how ne- how every day is going to end when that's your job. Whereas there can be a lot of disappointing news or, or not getting the answer you want or you know, all of that stuff when you're in entertainment.
0: How did that affect you as a kid seeing that? Did any of it deter you from that path?
1: Well, you know, it's so funny because the people that have a platform that reaches folks always say, oh, don't go into showbiz. It's the worst thing ever. Go away. But if you're hearing that from somebody, it means they're successful enough to be telling that to a bunch of people. So my thing was always like, oh... Yeah, stay away from showbiz. It's so punishing. It's so awful if you do it. You can have like a wonderful house with your uh, you know, family and a children and a wife who love you and and, a, and the respect you of your enjoy. peers. Yeah, and and <laughs> and loving what you do every day. Stay away, stay away. So it's like, you know, people can warn you all they want, but unless you see somebody who's like living under the freeway giving you that advice it's like i don't know it looks pretty good to me
0: right and like the other option cuz i feel like the reason people warn you is because of how brutal it is emotionally of course it's right. hard it's unstable but it's also like constant rejection not feeling good enough tying your worth to what you do instead yeah. of who you are and so yeah that there's that but then what would be worse would it be worse to do that and have to deal with those ups and downs Or to work a job that doesn't serve you or your soul at all, still be miserable and dealing with those ups and downs internally versus like going out every day and fighting for what you want.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I think that, you know, those of us who are lucky enough to sort of be blessed with that far off goal, that, that thing that we want to strive for. That's really the, the eternal question. And, and something that really hit me you know, in the right way was, it was a couple of years back, and uh, Jim Carrey was doing the commencement speech for a college, and he told a little anecdote about how his father wanted to be, I think it was a musician, and finally gave in and, and got a, you know, a very normal nine to five to support his family, and then got fired from that job. And, and the point of the story, and I'm paraphrasing, was that Jim Carrey said, you know, you can compromise and do what you don't want to be doing and still fail. Yeah. So you might as well go for the thing that you really want to do. And it was like, key smokes. I <laughs> never even thought of the idea of, you know, compromising and then that not working out. Like how how terrible well, yeah. that must be. There's
0: no guarantees in life. Right. You know? So no matter what you do, especially if somebody's in control of your destiny, like if you have a boss, it could drop out from under you at any time. Yeah. So go for what you want. Yeah,
1: exactly. And and that's kind of what keeps me on, on on the artistic path when I'm having my doubts, you know.
0: Yeah. What did young Gus want? Did you want to be an actor when you were a teenager college age, or did you have that like dream of making films planted in your heart at that time
1: yeah it's it's funny because the the goal was always changing because I never really th- thought of certain things as things that you could have a career in like my you know from, from a very early age uh, you know third or fourth grade I was picking up the, the family uh, camcorder and making little movies in the backyard and that kind of thing um, but I never thought of it as oh this is my my training or I'm going to be like Fellini or whatever kids think <laughs> at that age. I'm probably. sure
0: many kids think I'm going to be like Fellini.
1: Yeah the little <laughs> Italian kids you know and and my my grandmother uh, Rester would always say you know oh little Spielberg in the bed, you know that's what he used to do he used to grab his you know super Cameron make the little war films and stuff, and I would you know oh how how preposterous that's not what I'm doing. I'm just making you know little movies, so there was always that
0: why do you think you didn't associate with it? I
1: think maybe I thought that i that calling myself a director or an aspiring filmmaker was too presumptuous at that point. Mm-hmm. It's like you know if you pick up a paintbrush you're you're a amateur artist if you you know sit down at the typewriter, you're an amateur writer but something just about the mechanism required for filmmaking. It's like, no, I'm not making a movie. I'm just, you know, making a little movie. little
0: we'll doodad over here. Yeah.
1: So so that was going on. And then there was that. There was performing because that's kind of the only outlet that we get in K-12 in America. Nobody's like, oh, it's time for the, the elementary school's film festival. But, you know, everybody has a talent show or a school play or whatever. So I was doing that for uh, many, many years. And then really it, it took. Till late high school, when writing picked up again in earnest, I wrote my first feature screenplay the summer between high school and college. And once that was finished, it was like, "Ooh, I could, I could, you know, dig on this. This is, this is terrific." To hold this completed sheaf of paper in your hand and 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 say, "I, I did all this," you know.
0: So fast forward, you go to college, you study theater, right? Yes. You graduate. What Correct. was your <laughs> congratulations? <laughs> thank honestly. you, thank you. <laughs> What was your first move upon graduation? Were you like – because when I moved out here, I was like, all right, going to do my internship on The Ellen Show, then clearly going to be a sitcom star like three days later. I'm already Boom. on the WB lot. It's a shoo-in. Right. Were you of that mindset or because you would already seen your dad's path and the you know topsy-turvy journey that it can be, did you know it was going to be a little bit more up and down?
1: Yeah, I was really of – Two minds on that. I I certainly knew how hard it could be, but at the same time, I felt like I had been working (laughs) so dang hard during college because in between all of the acting stuff, and it was a very, very full load. You know, you have classes from 10 to 6 and then break for dinner and then, you know, uh, 80% of the time you then start rehearsing play and go from seven to 10. So it's, you know, pretty much a 12 hour day, um, in, in the program I was in, uh, and in between that, I was continuing to write features. I think I banged out, you know, maybe a total of four or five feature screenplays while I was in college. And because of that and a little funny series of events, I ended up getting hooked up with a coordinator at CAA, who I knew just through being a townie. He was the older brother of somebody that I went to high school with. So I was in this really rarefied position of coming out of college with basically representation at, at a top agency. He was promoted oh <laughs> he was promoted to being an agent during our first year together. But when you're a coordinator, you can basically do all the things that agents can do, you know, you can send out screenplays and take calls and, and all that fun monkey business. So I was fully prepared for the toilsome lifetime, but then also knew that I was getting dropped right into this very, very prime position and and was super optimistic about, you know, oh, maybe we can sell something within the next six months, year, whatever it is.
0: So was that agent taking like the five or six screenplays you wrote during college and shopping them around for you?
1: Yes and no. He The thing that got him interested in me was a screenplay um that was kind of the indiana jones national treasure version of the shakespearean authorship question where it was a, a mystery centered around uncovering shakespeare's identity with all of the real conspiracy theories involved and uh, he was sending that around and getting me a bunch of meetings off of it and then after that once i was already living out here i wrote the first screenplay that actually got you know attention and and, and ended up getting uh, produced and all that
0: So what are you doing in the meantime between, you know, you've got this great agent, you've got a few promising screenplays, how are you making money?
1: Yeah, I was writing every day and I had a day job at the very glamorous Fashion Square car wash in Sherman Oaks. Uh, I was a ticket writer, so I would stand there and, you know, hey, welcome to Fashion Square. I see you got some uh, road film on your car. You know what could help you out with that is the Wheel Express package doing my pattern and everything. And I was absolutely miserable. It was... All of the worst elements of customer service, like the standard thing to complain about is being in the restaurant industry. Oh, this person was an asshole. They didn't tip me. Working at the car wash, people come in angry. They're not happy to be out for a nice meal. They drive in, how long is this going to take? How mu- why is it that much? I could stand out with my hose and just, you know.
0: Well, then why don't you?
1: Exactly. So it was just taking this this brunt, this shotgun blast of ugly humanity in the face for, you know, whatever it was, five or six hours every day. and uh, And I was living this funny double life where, you know, a lot of the time I would finish my shift around one or two, walk to my car parked by the L.A. River change into a like fancy dress shirt and then drive to you know imagine entertainment or whatever it was for a general meeting so you know get yelled at by by the masses in the morning and then you know have some glamorous hollywood uh meeting in the afternoon it was bizarre
0: that's something no one really talks about here is how often we have to rock a high low yeah you know it's like you're in the shit job and then you're going to like For me, like, a lot of times, especially early in my media career, like, I'd be working a shitty job in the morning and then, like, going to record an interview, like, produce an interview with someone that, like, had a $5 million house at night. Right. So it's, like, it's hard for your brain to figure out, like, how... It's almost like when you get on an airplane and you're in one place, but then you end the day in another place, except the place you started out was like a trash yard, (laughs) and the place you end up is like Paris, and you're like, what? Yeah. How do I live both of these places?
1: No, truly, and I've had friends that share very similar stories of, you know, I I shoot a a meaningful episode of this series, and then I go back to my waiter job, and then I get a… A family of people saying, Why are you working here? We just saw you on Law and Order or whatever the you know show was you aren't you famous aren't you rich and then and having to stuff that no i'm just I'm just doing my thing you yeah. know I'm um, trying yeah I'm trying
0: <laughs> so what's your advice for someone out there who's in the midst of still building their dream and at the car wash like how do they <laughs> get through the car wash? How do they remember their goals?
1: Yeah, I was writing every single day. you got to keep the creativity going. It's very, very easy to finish you know, your quote day job and then come home and flop on the couch until it's time to do it all over again. It's it's the easiest thing in the world to fall into. And so whatever it takes to maintain that daily creativity, you know, whether it be setting the alarm two hours earlier than you're comfortable with and waking up and doing it then, making sure you carve out time in the evening, uh, you know, making sure that you, you block out time in your iCal or whatever. Oh, you know, I would love to come to the, the bar, but I can't because from four to six, I got a thing. Formalizing it in that way, you know, and and just really hope. Owning, uh, whatever your aspirational craft is, whether that's writing or, or performing or, or whatever it is. Um, the thing that I get asked all the time are questions to the effect of how do you find an agent, how do you get financing, etc., etc. Nobody ever asks how do I write the best script you've ever read? Like no, nobody is as concerned with the, with the product, with, with the thing that they're producing. And it's like, the fact is, you know, I could introduce you to agents all day long, unless you have a exceptional piece of material, they're not going to be interested in you. They have a stack of scripts on their desk, you know, 20 things high. And if they open it and, and the, first page is ill-formatted or riddled with typos or has some cliche, you know, oh, I'm too old for this shit on the first page. They're going to throw it, you know, in the trash heap. Because or... they're
0: too old for this shit. Exactly. <laughs>
1: or hit delete on their iPad, whatever the people do these days. So yeah, making sure that you are finding a way to ply your trade every day and and hopefully get a little better every day.
0: How do you get through the actual shift though? Like, did you just remember (laughs) that you had that meeting later in the day? Like, how did you mentally stay strong enough and not hate the very people that you were trying to portray in your scripts, right?
1: Yeah. It certainly does help to have that thing that you're looking forward to, whether it be a, a career thing later that day. Uh, something fun over the weekend, the career thing a month from now that you're that you're you know working toward, and also frankly, I kept a little notepad in my pocket, and anytime somebody would say something horrible or something funny would happen, I would just jot it down, and uh, ended up putting a lot of those ideas into a uh, a comedy screenplay that I wrote, you know, the year after.
0: Oh, I'd like to see that. <laughs> yeah, a lot of juicy
1: car wash tidbits in that one.
0: <laughs> so, do you ever get writer's block?
1: I don't really, and the I think that's a product of never having the time that I want to have. Uh, I sort of feel like if I had a completely clear week, you know, uh, 10 hours, 7 days in a row, maybe I would start to, oh, I don't know, should I do this, should I do that, you know, freeze up a little bit, but the fact that it was always like, okay, I have my morning, I have an hour here, I have two hours at the coffee shop, I would really just always have to knuckle down and, and be getting it done because that time was so... Um, Fleeting and and precious. And my little morning trick, um, if I ever was feeling sticky, was that I have a a giant mug uh, at home and I would make a big cup of hot tea every morning with the rule that I can't go on the internet. I can't futz around on Facebook. I have to sit at the computer until the tea is all gone. And because of the fact that it's hot and it's a giant mug, you can't just gulp it down. You have to kind of sit there for a minute. And after, you know, two, six, ten minutes, you start to slowly, you know, get your day started.
0: That's a good tip. I've never heard anybody <laughs> – that's like scientific.
1: Yeah, that's the hot tea trick, right? There.
0: The hot tea trick. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> do you have any advice for people who are experiencing writer's block? Because I think maybe there's something to what you're saying in the fact that, like, yes, you don't have the time. But because you had those small blocks, you had to get stuff done then. Like, do you think that if somebody does have the time and they're experiencing those breaking points where they can't think of anything, they should – um like put limits on when they actually write, like maybe from like 7 to 9 a.m. I write and then I take a break and then write, you know, 3 to 4 p.m. and take a break. Do you think there's something to that?
1: I think there absolutely is, uh, you know, because if you feel like you have the entire day ahead of you, it's like, well, why do I need to plow through? You know, I have the next 10 hours to get it done. But if it's like, no, no, I actually only have the next 45 minutes, then you really feel like you have to, you know, dig in. Um, The other thing that I've found on a more creative just kind of nuts and bolts level is that if I am ever really up against uh, a wall creatively uh, internally, I find that more often than not it's subliminally because I've done something wrong uh, in, in the project already. Oh. You know, if there's a mistake on page five, it's hard to get to page 15, you know,
0: that's very true. I noticed that with songwriting, like if the line before isn't good, it's hard to write the next. Yeah, line. exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so if I feel stuck and I don't know why, Uh, Often it helps to go back and read what you've already written and then you'll find, you know, oh wait, no, this this thing on page 10, you know, he goes into the donut shop, he should have gotten on the freeway and then you can kind of keep going from there.
0: Let's circle back to the first project that gets made. What did that process look like? What's the feeling you get like when you first find out like, oh my God, it's happening. (laughs) I'm gonna be famous. I'm gonna be the big thing. Did you Uh, sing it like that?
1: Yes, just like that. No, it it was, you know, it was a ton of fun. It was really exciting. And the thing that I was gifted with, which I didn't really appreciate at the time, was the fact that it happened and it went all the way through and it, it continued to happen, you know. And so, you're like
0: 23 at this point, right?
1: Yeah, I think maybe even a little younger when wow. we were actually in production. Um, because the, you know, more often than not, what happens is you you think you have your financing and then it falls through or you think you got your actor and then they drop out or whatever. We basically went in a straight line, you know, from – uh, option to to production, which is pretty cray cray, um, especially considering the budget. Which at this point, you know, this was before sort of the DV um, HD micro budget revolution. The the budget for my movie was way bigger than it would have been if if we made it today. What but was it? It's a, a movie called The Killing Room, which you can I think still find on on Amazon uh, at least physically. Uh, and the budget for that was about three point two million. Oh wow! And so what happened was uh, a place called Management Three Hundred and Sixty, which is also a production company, 360 Pictures, I think, got a hold of it. And they really liked it. And we explored for a minute the idea of doing it with me um, as a director, but people were wary of, you know, somebody who's young and inexperienced. And so then we moved on to, you know, I. <laughs> this is another little lesson. I could have dug my feet in. I could have been like, no, it's my way or the highway. And probably nothing would have ever happened. But I was still working at the GD car wash. And it's right. like, you know what, let's, let's, something happening mm-hmm. is better than,
0: Yeah. I wonder what you think about that because people always bring up the Stallone thing, right? Like Mm. he fought for it. He had to sell his dog (laughs) and then he made his film. I'm like, that could have totally backfired on him too. It's like at the end of the day, do you want your film made and do you want some part of your dream to come true or do you want no part of your dream to come true? Sometimes I guess you can really fight for things and maybe sometimes it can happen. Mm -hmm. But you could also get the door slammed in your face yeah. and get a big F you. You feel good about the decision you end up making to not dig your heels in.
1: Yes. No, yeah. of course. Um, and especially early in people's careers, I think folks kind of lose sight of that. It's a very, very small handful of people that get to kind of call the shots on the creative side. You know, producers can do what they want. But, I th- you know, it's, it's Nolan – Fincher, Spielberg, it's, it's a, such a small club. You know, Scorsese had to go to Netflix for his movie because nobody else would bankroll. The Irishman, you know, after having <laughs> the career that he's had, you know, it happens to everybody. But particularly if you're early in your career, if you don't have a huge body of work behind you, yeah, do what you can. <laughs> do what you can. Yeah, take the offers that are there rather than, you know, aiming for some, um you know, mystical, un- uncompromised version of, of your work. So we attached uh, a director uh, by the name of Jonathan Leapsman, who had uh, most recently done Texas Chainsaw the Beginning and has since done a bunch of big studio movies, Battle LA, uh, Wrath of the Titans. And from there, we did some rewriting and less than a year later, we're on location in beautiful Shreveport, Louisiana, um, with this incredible cast, uh, which included uh, Shay Wiggum and Timothy Hutton and Chloe Sevigny and Nick Cannon and Peter Stormare and just all these you know, tremendous uh, people, Cleo Duvall shot it in about six or eight weeks they edited for most of the following year and we premiered at uh, sundance in 2009 and that was casually <laughs> yeah nbd <laughs> you know yeah that was another you know i felt a little bit like an outsider i took a, a couple of old school buddies with me so there were four of us kind of tooling around and, and getting into what parties we could and, and all that um we actually got shut out of our first screening because it was all sold out and we didn't know how to buy tickets and stuff so
0: <laughs> Aww, that's so, <laughs> so sad I stood on the outside
1: you know listening to people like inside the theater the
0: room, that's my Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> (laughs) Uh, But we did catch the the following uh, uh, screening, so that was good.
0: So what happens after this? Because you mentioned this was 15 years ago. Ish, yeah. Ish. (laughs) What was your expectation, and then what happened with the film?
1: Killer Room ended up getting... I'm going to forget who the distributor was. We had, uh, and this is really going to date it, we had a nice uh, premiere window at Blockbuster Video. We were a, uh, a Blockbuster premiere where we had an entire wall to ourselves. Um, wow. Nothing but killing room as far as the I could see up and down. And so the movie my understanding of it you know did quite well with that being it's, it's you know kind of first big um, window and then we uh, we, we played all over the world I have a, a Russian poster for it um, in my office at home uh, I get foreign royalty checks from you know Germany and all these strange places not that Germany's strange but far flung places
0: crazy places like <laughs> Germany
1: like what England <laughs> have you ever heard of such a place never so uh, in terms of the release of, of that movie you know I was, I was perfectly happy I wasn't you know uh, uh,
0: I more mean like with your career and you like what was your expectation of what mm. would happen to you as a screenwriter as a hopeful director yeah and what did happen
1: yeah the you know i, I was they the same <laughs> i was hoping to you know just kind of continue to work consistently after that point but as a lot of folks of my generation can attest uh what was happening right around there was the kind of one-two punch of the worldwide global economic collapse, uh, which happened around then, would have been uh, 2009 or 10 combined with the fact that people weren't – the spec market kind of went away. Uh, people, What's the
0: spec market?
1: The uh, the spec market was when folks would just sit down and go, I have an idea. It's for a movie about Gus and Lauren, and they'd get into Wacky Adventures, and then you could go off and sell that to a studio. That went away in favor of everything being branded, and I'm not quite sure why that happened, but, you know, it, yeah, just slowly tilted in the way of, oh, it's got to be a book first. It's got to be a, a mm. you know, uh, a video game first. Because it's gotta be- probably
0: there was less money. And people were scared to make something that was a completely new idea.
1: Yeah, it's it's that it's the vanishing of the middle class. You know, it happened in Hollywood the same way it happened everywhere. Where the movies that you see now are, by and large, you know, ten million and below and a hundred million and up. It's tough to get a movie made in that middle space. Most everything is corporate owned. People don't want to spend twenty million dollars on a movie and make forty million dollars on a movie. They want to spend two hundred million dollars on a movie and make a billion dollars on a movie. That's just kind of the way the market has gone. So. Personally, things stalled out for a little while after Killing Room. It was very hard to get, you know, an original thing pushed through. So I managed to keep myself afloat with an option agreement here or a rewrite job there. But things were slow enough that after uh, a number of years, it was like, you know what, I think I just need to pull a um, an El Mariachi and go make my own first feature, uh, which was called The Binding. And uh, that came out a couple of years ago. And that kind of started me on my career 2.0 path.
0: Cool. So I have a few breakdown questions from there. All right. I asked the question about expectations because I think that that's a killer to a lot of us. We have a yeah. certain expectation when it doesn't happen. Many people feel prone to give up because they think, well, I failed. Right. When really it's just a call to re-navigate like you did and create your own work. Mm-hmm. What would be your advice for somebody who had a huge expectation, didn't quite hit it, yeah. and now is in the phase of do I reroute or do I give up?
1: It depends a great deal on what that original expectation was. Was it grounded? Was it realistic? Was it, you know, oh, I'm going to be the next Britney Spears, Taylor Swift, Billy Eichner. What's her name? Billy- Eilish. There we go.
0: Billy Eichner's the guy who does the thing Billy on the street. No,
1: I, th- I think that's also the singer.
0: <laughs> yeah, same person. It's pretty great.
1: Yeah, Billy Eichner in disguise. Um <laughs> Uh, if if your aspiration is to be you know huge, hugely rich and famous, might be time to take that down a couple of notches. If if the aspiration is literally just I want to work and be happy and make a living, you know there are so many ways to do that. You know I I, I don't want to say never throw in the towel because some people this is kind of. I feel like it might be a uniquely American problem where you're like, I decided when I was 17 that I wanted to be an actor. And now that I'm 27, even though I don't really want that anymore, that's what I told everybody. And so I got to keep pushing it, even though it's making me miserable every day. Like,
0: Why do you think that's American?
1: <laughs> it feels like a problem specific to a culture where everything is tied up in be the best, be the biggest, be the strongest, be the fastest, be the most rich, be the most successful, work the hardest – it seems like there's a real shame attached to something as simple as, you know what? I thought I wanted X and I don't want X anymore. I want Y. It's It just seems like there's a lot of like baggage and machismo and stuff tied yeah, up in something. Yeah, that's a
0: really is- interesting observation. I've never heard anyone say that before. And it's true. Like, why keep forcing yourself into this box that no longer serves you? Yeah, Bust out of there, honey buns. Right.
1: I think it's just very important to, you know, on, on, on the reg, uh, stop <laughs> and look at yourself in the mirror and say, Is what I'm doing still making me happy? Is it still what I derive my daily joy from?
0: Right. And if the answer is no, that's totally great.
1: Yeah. Completely legitimate.
0: You should find a new thing and there's no shame in that. Right. So you decide you're going to make your own project. Yes. From decision to making, what happens? Like, how do you actually physically do it?
1: Yeah. So this is where I am, again, just very fortunate, lucky, blessed, whatever you want to call it. Um, Having grown up in Los Angeles and the fact that it is a factory town, the fact that it's, you know, the movie industry, I had a lot of folks... In my phone, who were doing similar things. So one of my best buddies and his good friend, they have their own LLC, they own their own camera equipment. I know a bunch of terrific actors from the LA theater scene from having worked with folks before. So I sort of had a, you know, short list of folks that I could call in a friendly fashion and say I'm working on a thing. Do you want to come help me? It, you know, I didn't have to start with Craigslist or, or something like that. Not that there's anything wrong you with started that. started with
0: but Gus's list.
1: Boom. <laughs> um, Fuck Craig. <laughs> yeah, screw Craig. <Greg. laughs> so, you know, I could call everybody up. And the fact that they knew me as not a total idiot and not completely incompetent, it was like, okay, if Gus says – show up on X day at X time, there's going to be, you know, a mechanism there. There's going to be a production there, which is the other mistake that I've seen folks make. You know, you, you call somebody, you text them, and say, hey, you know, I'm kind of thinking of doing this project. If you're, are you around like in December, maybe we might do it then. Like that's a, that's a bad way <laughs> to go about that.
0: So if you're asking for help from someone, have your outline of what you're going to do at least. In yes,
1: because if you're self-financing, if you're self-producing, if you are even able to pay people, chances are it's not going to be their normal day rate, chances are it might not be the union standard. So if you can at least look at them and say, Monday, the 17th, eight o'clock, we'll be done by six. Can you be there? Then that gives them a very easy kind of clear cut, you know, way to say yes or no. So I was able to put together this teeny tiny little crew. Six of us were the core group that were there every single day and could do everything. And we basically had this very democratic thing of where I was like, I'll, I'll cut all of the big checks myself, you know, something where we have hard costs like effects makeup or location rental or whatever. I'll, I'll do all that myself. If y'all are able to pitch in for craft service and coffee and, you know, sandwiches and stuff, that would be great. It's not required. And then we'll put all of those expenditures into a Pot, you know, essentially, and then if we make money back from the movie, it will all be reimbursed accordingly. So if you, you know, spent three percent of what everybody spends, then you will get three percent back, you know, plus whatever the the legal thing is. So it was this very nice kind of communist way of making a movie, uh, where you know we would all get out what we put in. We shot it over a, uh, it was only about 18 days, but 18 days spread out over about six months, et cetera, et cetera. So I got all of these terrific actors who who knew exactly what was, you know, happening up front. Um, my friend uh, Amy, who people might know from uh, Supernatural, you know, it was her chance to be the lead of a movie. And I said, I know that you're working, but if you're comfortable with, you know, coming out and, and, and playing for a series of days over a series of months, you know, this is a really kind of meaty role and, and all that. And Getting back to what I said earlier, you know, it was a screenplay that everybody really dug and, and could get behind. And and so they were excited about it as opposed to like, OK, I guess I'm doing you this favor. You know, everybody was kind of equally uh, gung-ho about the process, which was terrific.
0: I've talked a lot on the show about releasing and the feeling of releasing something and what it's like, but it's a specific feeling of pressure when it's something that really has come from you entirely like you funded this correct yeah you funded it you wrote it you're directing it you're producing it everything is coming from you what was that feeling like and what's your advice to someone out there who's in the midst of a big release
1: the the difficult part of it and i will you know confide this to you it's it's not something that's sort of uh fun to talk about but it was a it was a small movie you know we had some great actors but you know small budget all the normal constraints of a of a smaller movie and uh, because of that, and because of the fact that it was kind of a horror film, kind of a drama, kind of a religious treatise, um, whatever the reason is, and maybe it just wasn't uh, everybody's cup of tea, maybe it wasn't the greatest thing in the world, we didn't get into virtually any of the film festivals that we had applied mm-hmm. to. And that can be really, really tough, as any you know sort of filmmakers uh, out there will know, because you got to start with Sundance, it's the start of the year, it's the big one, it's the famous one, and then from there, you know, you kind of... Uh, go down the roster and when you get those emails or calls or whatever it ends up being and it's just that binary there's no consolation prize it's just you got in or you did not get in And, and when you know letter after letter comes of you know thank you so much but we get so many uh submissions every year and unfortunately we didn't have a you know it's just really really tough and then you know particularly if you're involved in the scene and you go to festivals as a as a Civilian, and then you know you sit there and have to watch a movie. You know this this movie isn't as good as my movie. You know you get into that mindset, which can be really tough.
0: Well, it is hard though. Like I did a whole episode about rejection because mm. my song got rejected from a bunch of music blogs. Right, right, right. And I mean, reading rejection after rejection, even if you really like your work, mm-hmm. it does wear on you. Yeah. How did you recover from that creative heartbreak?
1: Honestly, and it might not be something that's possible for everybody. Um, go to Hawaii. No, um, I, I dove really hard into the next thing. I really doubled down on, you know, okay, this, uh, it, and, and, and the binding is out there, you know, it's on, it's streaming on Amazon. You can I find the
0: DVD actually. Oh, it's excellent. In my bookshelf.
1: <laughs> Very much appreciated. <laughs> yeah. You can still find it, uh, find the discs, places and stuff. So it's out there, which is tremendous. You know, that's, that's more than a lot of, movies our size get is to be out there in, in physical media as well as uh, streaming everywhere. So that was great. The fact that, it you know, you could walk into a Walmart and buy it was was really terrific. So that, of course, you know, offered some solace, you know, even, even if you're not sort of getting the uh, the accolades, that version of the dream, you know, your work is still out there. It can be appreciated by people. Uh, it's always fun to read the reviews online because if you're happy with the work, like you say, um, either people get it or they don't. And And I'm actually very lucky in that. That does genuinely roll off my back. Um, if people like it, great. And if they have something bad to say, usually I don't agree. And How it's does it roll silly. off
0: your back? I'm trying to become um, less of a well, – I always say my skin is translucent.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, very like a, thin. Like a little goldfish.
0: Paper thin.
1: Um, but, uh, <laughs>
0: How do you build thicker skin? Yeah,
1: that part, I don't know if that's something you're born with or whatever. But for me, it's always like you're either conscious of your own – the the own deficits present in your work or you're not and if you are aware of them and other people pick up on them it's like ah shoot they they caught that and then if you disagree with their criticism it's like oh well they're wrong so i've i've always been okay like so i guess i just take a very kind of cold logical approach and that helps you know not feel rage <laughs>
0: yeah that's good that's great advice so basically be realistic about the holes in your skill set and then also know It's okay to disagree with what they say. Yeah, If they say something that you wholeheartedly don't see in your own work, maybe they're just wrong.
1: Right. And a (laughs) a couple of folks, um, you know, online when they write their reviews of of The Binding, I would get, you know, a couple of times where they, not what I was expecting and blah, 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 blah. blah. And then I would always kind of glaze over after that because it's like, well, not what I was expecting is on you. That's not my fault. You know, I made my thing. Not what I was expecting is the same as saying overrated. Overrated is reacting to what everyone else says about the movie, not the movie itself.
0: Yeah. How do you rate it? Yeah. <laughs> Outside of the opinions of are others. That's
1: why you're supposed to be a reviewer. Yeah, exactly. You
0: know, oh, it's movies. Have an soon. original yeah. thought, you asshole.
1: <laughs> it's so overrated. Like, okay, well, that's not my problem. Like, yeah. I did, Why I did... did you rate it before you yeah. saw it? <laughs> I didn't rate my own movie. I just made my own movie.
0: <laughs> that's a great point. <laughs> so let's fast forward to what you're doing now. You have yes. another feature film that's about to be released. Yes. And... It's won all kinds of awards from all these different festivals. Yeah. It's an incredible movie. I saw it today. Oh, thank you. Thank you <laughs> for sharing the link with me. Of course. It's called My Name is Myesha. Yes. Okay, so I want to talk a lot about this. This is <laughs> a really cool film, but first, before we dive into some of the deeper topics, give us a little synopsis of what it is about.
1: Yeah, My Name is Myesha is a feature based on a stage play called Dreamscape, uh, which had been running and, and is still running in different... Uh, shapes and forms for maybe four or five years before i saw it it received uh, its first sort of traditional you know six-week run downtown at latc and the playwright is uh, somebody that i knew through the riverside connection and had been buddies with for a number of years and uh, a bunch of folks that we have in common you know had kind of come to me and said gus you have to check out this play i know Rick kirby you know does a lot of work this is really exceptional even for him go check it out and i was like all right cool so me and my then-girlfriend, now-wife, um, went downtown, very unassuming, just thinking we were going to check out a, a cool night of theater, down to one of their little basement spaces and saw this two-person show that told the story, the, the true story of uh, the fatal shooting uh, of a girl in Riverside in 1998 by the cops. And this real story was sort of Trayvon Martin before social media. It was something that the community perceived as a great injustice, and they were, you know, Picketing, marches, uh, people standing outside the police station day after day, you know, justice for Taisha, all of these things. And, um, you know, local papers having to keep it on the front page of the news for months at a time when will we see justice because there was no way to hashtag. There was no... Twitter, uh, you know, no way to kind of create a a groundswell that way. So it was just, uh, you know, this very heartbreaking true story that the playwright never wanted to adapt for fear that it would be exploitative or sensationalist or, you know, all of those things that you struggle to avoid when you're dealing with a tragic true story. And then he finally found sort of a unique way into it with all of these elements of beatboxing and spoken word and dance and movement and rapping and just all of these non-traditional, non-linear elements that he then applied to this very relatable, tragic story and and out of that dreamscape was born so I just sat there for you know the 80 minutes whatever it took of the stage play with my jaw on the unfinished concrete floor and then you know kind of afterwards hey great job and ran off to um, a bar with with my wife and said okay this is how you would do the movie you would do it this way and you would do it that way and then she could come into like her own space and it's like her mind and it's like this empty void but like and then it fills with stuff that she's talking about and I could not let go of the idea and, and I just finished the binding like I said not had you know the, the most uh, ideal kind of post-production, you know, release experience with that, had kind of vowed that I wasn't going to do anything at this small, self-produced scale again, and then all of that, of course, immediately went out the window when I, when I found this incredible piece of theater, and so I, I called up Curb uh, a couple of days later, you know, just with the pretense of, hey, it's, it's been too long, let's get coffee, let's, you know, let's hang out. Who's Curb again? Curb is Kirby Hines, the author of Dreamscape. Oh, got it. Um, and then eventual co-screenwriter, uh, producer of the film. So we we meet downtown near the theater. Um at a at a coffee shop, and I managed to kind of play it cool for like two or three minutes before I just come out with, you know, okay, so I think it should be a movie, and here's how you he would do it, and here's how you could find it. We can put it together this way, and it'll be amazing. Here's how you do. and I I kind of gave him my basic pitch of how you would adapt the the stage play to film, the kind of wraparound that we would create, and then kind of sold him further, I think, with the with the pitch of and we wouldn't have to change any of it we would treat this like how you would adapt you know shakespeare or or a broadway play or something you don't start by changing all the words you start by finding a way to cinematically envision what has played out on stage and to his credit he was pretty much as i recall kind of instantly on board with with all of that and from there we started the the very slow gradual process of of putting it together
0: so there's a few things i want to talk with you about so this tells the story of a black woman and it is a beautiful depiction. I mean, I, the, the movie, it's horrifying because of what's happening to her, but it's also very beautiful the way you do it because it there are many theatrical elements to it. But I just found it so interesting and cool, but also challenging that you as a white man are telling this story. But then when I found out that you had a co-writer and it sounds like he was maybe the primary writer and you were coming in and helping him adapt it. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. Okay. So what was your approach for you as a white person in telling this story of a person of color and doing it with integrity and doing it with truth and honesty and like not overstepping your bounds? Like how did you approach it and like how did you two collaborate on it and why, yeah, let's just start there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. um, No, I, I knew that to a certain extent, you know, I was walking into a little bit of a minefield And if this had been a studio movie, you know, if they had interviewed 10 people to direct it and then chose me, I think that would have been very problematic. And I, you know, might not even be in a position to take an offer like that. The fact that it was this teeny tiny independent film that we were piecing together, you know, by, by hook or by crook, I think people sort of implicitly understood that it was going to happen with this exact team or not at all. There were sort of, you know, maybe half a dozen key key members behind the scenes. And if you knocked out any one of those table legs, the whole thing would collapse. So it was not a matter of, you know, okay, it's either going to be Gus or Ava DuVernay. Uh, It was really only going to ever exist with this exact group. So beyond that, there was this interesting thing where I think it can be very problematic when – White people tell the story, uh, some kind of two-hander, where there is a a white person and a black person at the forefront of of a film, uh, or or a piece of theater, or whatever it is, because what invariably happens is you reach a... um, a place of you know if, if there's reconciliation involved in that story, then it becomes sort of an underlying message of my intolerance is just as good as your benevolence because everybody becomes friends in the end, mm-hmm. and that is deeply deeply troubling, but the fact that it was a entirely african American cast, you know not a single sort of principal um non black person in this. That also offered another little measure of comfort because it was like, okay, I'm not coming into this as somebody who is trying to navigate all of these, you know, racial opposing viewpoints. It's really just telling a story of this young girl. You know, I've I've directed things set in old Edwardian England, and nobody comes up and says, you know, wait a minute, you're not a British person. You're not, you know, you weren't born in 1812. How how why are you qualified to do this? But the fact that it's you're telling a story that happens to be set in a in a certain sort of cultural place, <laughs> those tricky things come up less. On a much more practical level, I was working from a screenplay that had been through the, that that began with a black playwright and then ended with every single thing going through his filter. You know, there was not one word of that screenplay that had not been vetted. So it's not
0: like you interpreting black culture. Exactly. It's him writing it and then you two working together to make it fit for the film.
1: Yeah, exactly. And the fact that we had, you know, several key producers um, and people behind the scenes uh, that were POCs, the fact that, you know, everybody in the movie who was going to be saying this dialogue and doing these things, you know, were all African-American. There was no, you know, and I was very upfront at the beginning, if there was anything that feels false or you know, even offensive that, that, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to depict it. I don't want to, you know, be a part of that particular conversation. Please, please come to me. And it didn't happen a ton, but there absolutely were a few places where I said, you know, what about this? And Rachel or actress or whoever it would be would say, no, actually I would be more comfortable if it was this. And I would always defer to them um, in those kind of cases, because I was very, very comfortable saying, you know what, my expertise in this particular arena is, is the cinematic side, not the sort of cultural life experience side. I am here to tell your story, not to grab it by the reins and try to make it mine.
0: No, I think that that's like a great point because if you are interpreting like another culture or another gender or another sexual orientation, that you defer to the person who's actually a part of that community mm-hmm. is important. Yeah. And that you are humble enough to do that is probably why this worked. So – I know in the midst of making it, you also you, – I mean, you did the fundraising yourself. Mm-hmm. There was a Kickstarter campaign yes. that you tried to do. It didn't actually end up working out. Could right. we go through that a little bit? <laughs> and then how did you actually get the funding
1: for it? You know, it, it was one of those things where it seemed like the stars were aligning – And pointing us toward a crowdfunding campaign. Um, it was, we were coming up on Black History Month. It was this true story. There were all of these elements involved. There were, you know, people around the world that had seen the play. So the play had a following. It either had just, or was just about to win a bunch of NAACP awards for, for theater, for small theater. And everybody that we were talking to was like, no, this is the way to, to make it happen. So I was like, okay, great. We're going to do it. And we did everything that you're supposed to do for a Kickstarter campaign in terms of, you know, research and how to get the most eyeballs and and all this kind of stuff. And then put it up and like day one and day two went gangbusters, like so good, like right on track. And then after that, we kind of fell off a cliff and it was one of those where like day five I was like this this isn't going to happen like you know there's short of a literal like it's a wonderful life moment where suddenly they run through the door with a basket of money like the whole town yeah (laughs) (laughs) I'm just crunching the numbers and it's like oh yeah like with each day that passes you're like okay we're gonna have to raise 10 grand a day from now on for it to work out oh we're gonna have to raise 12 grand a day for it to work out so it was that that February whatever it would have been February of you know 2016-17 it was just the one of the hardest times of my life because I was waking up every day with just this this failure mashed in my face. Where every single day, you know, you would wake up in the morning and check the thing, and it went, "Nope, you're not doing it. You're not good enough. It's not happening." And that was a really really rough month for me. So it got to um, the end of of uh, the month, we had raised a you know a very respectable sum, but a f- Tiny fraction of what our you know initial goal had been. So I, I wrote you know a very very gracious social media post because that was truly how I was feeling. You know, oh my God, I I can't believe how many people came out of the woodwork to contribute to this. It's so moving. You know, this person from elementary school who I haven't talked to gave us fifty bucks. It's so so nice. Thank you all. I have the best friends and family in the universe. And then just like collapsed in on myself like a neutron star. And the way I started to pull myself out of it is so. Being dorky and white that i shouldn't even talk about it on the air but i was in the car absently listening to uh hamilton because that was like you know super all the rage and the cd cycled back to the beginning of act one and then it gets to my shot and I'm slowly slowly like coming back to life over the course of that song because it's all about you know I'm past patiently waiting I'm passionately smashing every expectation every action's an act of creation and it was just speaking to me so so profoundly in that moment that like by the end of that track it was like no you know what I'm back on the horse yeah I am ready to make it happen (laughs) and so we um you know we got all the producers together we reconvened how can we do this for not x number of dollars but this smaller X number of dollars and basically through, you know, private financing through some pre-sales through um, people in Riverside that had a vested interest in the story. We were able to piece together the smaller version of the film and we were, you know, on set in October of that year, you know, a few short months later.
0: So it's coming out this week. Yes. How are you feeling? What, what is the goal? Like how can we support the film?
1: Yeah. The goal is to have folks see it, you know? we every, Everybody sort of involved got into this reluctantly. Initially, Kirby, you know, like I mentioned, was was hesitant to write the play. I was hesitant to make another movie at this scale. You know, the list goes on. But we were all compelled by, you know, the the nature of, of the story, the fact that it's, you know, based on not only a true event, but many, many, unfortunately, true events. And... Even folks that come into it kind of grumpy and skeptical, you know, by the end of it, they all are so, so on board with, you know, Maisha's story and the journey that we all take together and and all of that. So the goal is only to get it in front of people, you know, to to both the converted and the skeptical uh, alike, you know. So we've had a a ton of support from um, the festival circuit, you know, um, from – a couple of very vocal folks on Twitter. So, you know, in addition to just checking it out yourself, if you then do enjoy it, you know, to just kind of get out there and bang the drum uh, through whatever platform you have is going to, you know, really make the difference between folks seeing this and, and not.
0: What would be your advice for fellow screenwriters, especially people who are just starting out? Like, what should they do besides writing all the time? Yeah. Like, what are action steps they should take to bring themselves closer to their dream?
1: Like I say, like you say, writing all the time is paramount. Being a curious, creative person is also super vital. I am never not stunned by the people that want to be writers or directors who just don't see any movies, like, let alone, you know, seeking out weird movies or, or foreign movies or quirky movies, just the people that don't see whatever the best picture winner is that year. You know, what'd you think of shape of water? Oh, I didn't see that one actually. Like, you know, I loved that. <laughs> regardless. It turned me on. Yeah. Right. Fishman. Um, Wish I was kidding. <laughs> regardless of uh, like what folks might think of a given thing. You know, if you're, if you're a waiter and Spielberg walks in and he says, you know, what do you do? And, and you say, oh, I'm, I'm a writer, I'm an actor, you know, whatever it is, and you're making chit-chat, and he goes, oh, what'd you think of uh, Shape of Water? And you go, oh, I haven't seen that one yet. Like, the conversation ends there, you know? You have to be so, so present in in the the creative world and what is happening at, at any given point, you know? And... Um, the The playwright John Logan, whose work I adore, he always says, um, "If you want to be a good writer, you go and you read Hamlet ten times." And that's the advice that nobody wants to hear. They want to hear, "Oh, you go watch Pulp Fiction ten times," but that's not true. You got to go back to the classics. You got to really, you know, go back to the foundations and 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 dig deep and all the rest of it. And I'm also a big proponent of that. You know, you should always be reading something. You should always, you know, have a, a cue of sort of elevated. Um, Film on on your, uh, you know, whatever your platform is, you should seek out movies that you wouldn't have seen otherwise, but you go online and it's like, oh, all of these critics say that this foreign film that I've never heard of, you know, is is the best thing of the year. I should go check that out. Just always be trying to fill your your tank with, you know, that kind of uh, rejuvenating the creative juju.
0: That's a great one. And also, I mean, you never know how one thing could lead to another. You could see something and be inspired by it, and maybe it doesn't show up directly in your work, but it's kind of somehow mm-hmm. in a weird way led you there. One thing I was thinking about when I was watching your movie is how you have this rich background in Shakespeare. You're an incredible Shakespearean actor. And it's interesting because that play was very Shakespearean mm-hmm. in its own way. And I think it's cool that you find a way to modernize and that's not the first time you've done this. You did it with a few of the plays I've seen you write. And I, I love that you find a way to like take those old English works and bring them into our current world. So... Yeah, even if you're watching something that doesn't seem like it's at all related to your art, it could very well find a way into what you're
1: doing. Yeah, and um, you know, Maisha is not an easy movie to describe. And the most succinct way I could possibly ever pitch it to people was it's it's Fruitvale Station meets Across the Universe, which are two that's so true. <laughs> which are two. While you could you cannot get more different, you know, than those movies. But it's like if you're if you're a uh, an action movie guy and you only watch action movies, you know that it's it's the equivalent of only eating mac macaroni and cheese all day long. You know, you got to kind of broaden the palette because just remaking uh, the kind of movie that you love is not enough in and of itself. But, you know, sometimes smashing two really different things together can create something really kind of unique and fun and different.
0: Great. It's true. Do it. <laughs> so, my final questions I want to go back to little Gus. All right. I think creativity is deeply linked to the inner child. <laughs> so, if you and your younger self were standing in the same room, Whatever age you think of him, and you're looking at each other, what do you think he would say to you and why?
1: You're losing your hair. <laughs> I had a I had a speech impediment when I was young.
0: Oh my gosh, you really <laughs> cured that?
1: It was the RW, the Elmer Fudd, very, very like that. No, I I, you know... <laughs> <laughs> it's so tough, but I, I would like to think that that he would be happy with where I've landed. I I, I picture my young self in this kind of idealized. I was a, I was a very like idyllic looking little kid. I looked like Henry Thomas in ET or something. Um, and then Aww. got old and all all gnarled and messed yeah, up what looking. <laughs> <laughs> but so like you know, my parents had pictures around the house of me like in overalls and stuff. So I always picture myself. You know, when when you say like as a kid or whatever, I picture myself in that kind of three year old, four year old thing but the fact that uh, regardless of sort of the hardships i've continued to do it to do it at all you know is is i think a testament to um to knowing your path and 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 also walking the path to to paraphrase morpheus in in the matrix
0: um
1: but then little things like the fact that you know like i say my first creative endeavors were all literary and this is this is additional news but um i have recently Successfully completed my first uh, novel that's going to be out. Uh, I shouldn't say via who, but you know, out by way of a very known, reputable uh, publisher sometime in April, I think.
0: Congrats.
1: Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, I think that would probably be the biggest, you know, cool thing to my young self because I was always trying to write a novel when I was a little kid, you know, before I knew how to type, before I knew anything elementary school, I had this, you know, big stack of thing about a uh, guy that got turned into a monkey and went on adventures trying to not be a the monkey I hope that's coming out. And if it's not, I'll sue. Write it. Yeah. So, you know, and the fact that I have a, a pretty girl that has agreed to be my wife and live yeah. with me, like that would have been thrilling to uh, to my young self. Willingly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, not even... Uh, not by force. <laughs> <laughs> no chains in the basement or anything, like super legit. Yeah. So, you know, I think that there's always things to be striving for, particularly, you know, with regards to where you wanted to start out. Although if I was young enough, I might be disappointed that I was not did not be a, become a geologist, which was my first goal, was to study uh, pretty rocks. <laughs>
0: well, you know what? It's never too late. Yeah. That could be your thing when you're in your 50s. No, it's true. That's what I always think. I'm like, you can recreate your life anytime you yeah. want.
1: Yeah.
0: And last question. All
1: right.
0: What would you say to him and why? Ooh.
1: <laughs> it would probably be a combo of like, don't be so hard on yourself. Don't pay any attention to the bullies and the haters because they're always going to be there. They don't know nothing. You're allowed to turn your back and walk away. You don't have to seek the approval of everybody, even you know the people that that could care less about that and and, and you know want nothing to do with you. You don't have to uh, to to seek their approval. And the years when you think you're uh, overweight, you're actually like probably going to be in the best shape that you're <laughs> ever going to be in. You know in what? Your life. <laughs> we all need to give ourselves that <laughs> advice.
0: Unless you're J Lo, congratulations, right. you got hotter with age. But yeah. <laughs>
1: No, I, some somebody like tweeted. I think really succinctly. I can't believe I spent my skinny years thinking I was fat.
0: I know I could go back and literally punch <laughs> myself in the face. Be like, enjoy this, bitch.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think that's it. Don't listen to the haters. Go a little easier on yourself and um, and enjoy that period of like age twenty two to twenty eight because like that's that's the money years,
0: <laughs> right? Even though it's painful and weird in its own way, yeah. Enjoy it. Yeah, exactly. Because you never get that part of the journey back. And why torture yourself the whole time?
1: <laughs> and if I could quickly plug uh, a few other things yeah, coming up, please. So uh, yeah, Maisha will be uh, in theaters. We're going to play the Lemley Glendale um, in Los Angeles. So if you're here, we're doing our Q and A screening uh, there at seven thirty uh, at Lemley Glendale on, on the January twenty third, and then we're going to run for at least a week there, depending on uh, how we do. And then the movie will start to pop up. Um, in stores and on iTunes and Amazon and everywhere that you find movies, starting that weekend, but then will officially be everywhere on Tuesday, January twenty eighth. So look for my Asia there. Um, I also, unless something has changed, I believe I have my mo- my name still on a movie um, called The Wave, starring Justin Long and Donald Faison, uh, which is really terrific. It also comes out this coming week. Uh, look for it in all the aforementioned places. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Gus K. If people care about that. I love Twitter, <laughs>
0: Mr. Gus K. Yes, thank you. One word. <laughs> thank you so much for listening and thanks to my guest gus krieger you can see his new movie my name is Myesha, in theaters if you're local to la at the glendale lemley theater if not get it on demand you can get more info at my name is and Myesha is spelled m-y-e- i s h a you can follow the movie at my name is Maisha and gus at mr gus k on twitter thanks to liz full for composing the show's theme music follow her at liz full and again thank you you sweet sweet creative if you enjoy the show the best way to share that is by rating reviewing and subscribing on apple podcasts and following it on spotify if you really like the show, tell a friend about it and then go ahead and take a screenshot of yourself listening and share it to your Instagram stories. Tag at Unleash Your Inner Creative and at Lauren LaGrasso and I will repost it. My wish for you this week is that you keep your mind in possibility no matter the setbacks and that you don't rehearse your troubles but rather tackle them as they come and then let them go. I believe in you. Talk next week.